just want to say it's so good to be here this morning with you and to see you and quite a few of you made it. I know that some are still going to be coming in because the rain slowed them down this morning, but isn't it beautiful? It's awesome. Um, I want to take this opportunity because I know we have some visitors this morning to say welcome. We're glad you're here. Several visitors. So we're really, really glad that you're here. Um, if, please introduce yourself to as many people as you can. Go to the discussion group um, with the person who brought you. We, we meet right after the teaching time to just get together and encourage one another and go over um, the homework. So go with the person who brought you, or if you came by yourself, see Sarah, and she can help you in finding a discussion group um, to go to. There's going to be a sign-up sheet that Sarah's going to start passing around for the next part of Wellspring. We we need a few more people to sign up for snacks for the rest of the year, so we appreciate you serving us that way. It's always good to know we have something to eat. Um... Women for Truth. On Sunday you received a, a green card and I forgot to bring mine, but that is going to be March 1st and 2nd. It's a Friday night and a Saturday all day. It's a conference. It's in Chandler. And um, we really want to encourage you to go if you can. Make the time to go. It's on Friday night and Saturday. I think it's over around 4 or something like that on, on Saturday. Elise Fitzpatrick is going to be the speaker and there's a lot of workshops to choose from and a couple of the women from Grace Bible Church will be teaching there Um, so I encourage you to to go if you can uh, make that Um, next next week we're going to start having to be done having our discussion groups done and the chairs all put away um, or stacked at nine because people are going to be coming and using this building right away so just kind of be thinking ahead um, to that next week or, or not next week, for next week, but in two weeks. I think that is it for announcements, right? So let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning just praising you. Thanking you for the beautiful weather that reminds, that even reminds us that you are creator, God, and you create rain and You created this world, and you created us. And so, Father, I pray that this morning, as we think about that, and we think about um, the impact that that has on us, we would praise you for your Son, for you sending your Son to to this earth to live a perfect life. When rebellious people put you on the cross, Put your son on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin, for our sin, to take on your wrath in our place. We praise you for that. We thank you for forgiveness of sins. We thank you that you adopted us. We thank you, Lord, that your son rose from the dead and is um, in heaven making intercession for us even right now. We thank you that we're no longer a slave to our sin, Lord, but... By your power, we, we can fight sin, even though our hearts are in this mixed condition now. Father, I pray that this morning you would help me speak clearly. You would help us to um, be alert, and you would help us, Lord, 
by your spirit to embrace who you've created us to be as women. I pray for each and every woman as they leave here this morning, Lord, I pray that they would be more in love with you and embrace and love who you've created them to be and for your good purposes and for your glory. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, um, we are going to start um, like we do every Wellspring. So flip your notebooks over and we are going to go over disciplines. We are going to talk about why we're here this early on a Saturday morning, and that's Wellspring's purpose, and it's to equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible Church to shepherd their hearts toward Jesus Christ with a word of God. We do that with his word so that, so that um, we live out the gospel. And what, is that, what does God do in that? That strengthens the church. It strengthens the church in its gospel purpose. That's why we're here this early, every Saturday, every other Saturday morning. And we want to understand and grow and unite our lives around these spiritual disciplines. And at Wellspring, we focus on three. Concerning our hearts, our homes, and ministry. Discipline one is about our hearts. She prayerfully shepherds her heart toward God through the word of God and in particular... The gospel. So when we say heart, what are we talking about, biblically speaking? Remember, we're not talking about the organ, right? It's our inner man. It's all of who we are. It's our mind and our emotions and our desires, our will. Everything we do is shaped and controlled by what our heart desires. And God transformed our hearts when he saved us. He gave us new hearts. We're new creatures with new desires. We're united with Christ. And that is a work of God. Remember? It's a one-time event. Now, this new heart is still in this mixed condition, right? You know, there's still the indwelling sin in our new hearts. The good news is, though, that sin's no longer the master of our heart. But there's that lingering effect, that residue of sin. And praise God, we weren't who we weren't, we weren't, we're not who we once were. We were dead. We were lost. We were hopeless. That was the condition of our, our inner man before he intervened and saved us. And we're not yet where we won't battle with sin. That's heaven. That's heaven. But while in this mixed condition, it's necessary to care for these hearts and to feed these hearts and strengthen these new hearts, our new inner man, with the truth of God's word, with the hope we have in the finished work on the cross in the gospel. His word tells us who he is, tells us who we are, what he's done, and how we are to respond. Our hearts need to be exposed to his word. We need it desperately so that we can draw near to the one whom we've been united to, Jesus, and to treasure him above all. But we do have to be purposeful. We have to be purposeful and we have to be disciplined. And and these are disciplines um, that we have before you to grow in. We're not perfect in them. We never will be. It's a lifelong pursuit. And at the beginning of Wellspring, we told you that your primary assignment is to pick a reading plan, you know, in order to read through the Bible uh, close to a year or in a year. And the purpose in that is to help us to be strengthened and grow in this discipline to draw near to our Savior and to meet with him, not to check a box. So at this point... 
Have you, have you fallen behind in your reading plan? You know, are you thinking at this point, you know, you're pretty much a failure? Well, thankfully, God's love for us isn't dependent on our failures or our successes. It's only based on his son's finished work on the cross. Let that be your motivation to worship him in his word. So if you're discouraged, don't give up. Don't give up. Start today. Hit, hit reset. Pick up where you left off. Scratch out that date and just keep going. You know, um, or, or just start. If, if you're just so married to the date, then start on the date today. It doesn't matter. It's, it's a matter of drawing near to our Savior and, and loving him and worshiping him more today than yesterday, more this year than last year. So keep going. Okay? So I want to encourage you, and let's encourage one another to just keep going and persevere in this. Well, this morning we're going to start in Discipline 2 um, because we've graduated from Discipline 1. <laughs> you laugh because you know we say we never graduate from Discipline 1, right? Discipline 2 is the overflow of Discipline 1. It's just the overflow. Discipline 2 says um, is about our household relationships. She ministers to those in her household with her heart for God and the gospel. The first place to make an impact with our heart for God and his word is where we live, in our homes. Regardless of the season of life we're in, I'm an empty nester. Now, seasons change all the time. Whether you're an empty nester or single or married, with or without children, living with your parents, living with your siblings. Um, But as we shepherd our, our hearts that are in this mixed condition first and we're drawing near to him and we're pursuing Christ and we're delighting and growing in our affection for him, by his grace we're fighting and dwelling sin in us with and from the gospel. We want to place a priority um, on our household relationships, a priority in making a gospel impact with those that we live with and those who enter into our homes, not leapfrogging, not neglecting those relationships, which can be kind of easy to do sometimes if we're not purposeful. So it's good to ask, you know, what kind of impact or influence do you have on those relationships right there in your home? Is it a gospel influence? Or are you growing in that? It's very sobering, isn't it? Please be encouraged that this, too, is a lifelong process. It's a process. And it doesn't just happen because you want it to. It takes being purposeful with our own hearts. That's why we talk about Discipline 1 so much. But to see these relationships as a priority. And we're going to be in Discipline 2 for quite a while, um, if, even if you look at your schedule, I think it says uh, through, um, like through March. Um, it's important, but we'll always keep coming back to our home. But as you're being faithful in your pursuit and growing, and you're ministering to others, um, oh wait, I'm sorry. I, I want I want to just let you know first that we're today we're going to set a we're going to start a foundation in in um, discipline too in relationships in our home and just kind of lay a foundation for biblical womanhood. But we're gonna we're gonna um, we're gonna really try to teach and encourage one another in in the different roles that we have and what the, what God's word says 
about each of those kinds of seasons of life and what his word says about being a woman and how we are to um, display the gospel in, in our homes. So uh, we're, we're going to spend a lot of time in that. And discipline three is about ministry, where we minister to others. Um, as we continue to grow in this, in these, in these disciplines, we don't want um, to wait to minister to others until we think we've mastered discipline one and we've mastered discipline two because we never will. But as you're being faithful and you're pursued and growing and you minister to others in the church and outside of the church to a lost world, well, we, we minister with the very same thing we're learning now in these disciplines with a heart for God and the gospel and fulfilling your ministry within your household. That's discipline one and two. We step into the church to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. And so there are your disciplines. I want to I kind of warn you um, this morning. You might want to just kind of fasten up because we're going to try to go a little fast and you may feel like you are being hit with a fire hose with a lot of stuff. But just hang in there and... Um, Try to stay alert, and we're, we are going to take a break, and we are going to go to God's Word um, eventually. But I want to I start by asking a couple of questions this morning. How many of you have given um, much thought to the topic of biblical womanhood, about biblical femininity? You know, that, that word femininity is not one we hear very often anymore, is it? You know, and I'm not talking about what we wear, about pink and lace and, and that. I'm not talking about that. Elizabeth Elliot says this, and it's really good. Femininity is not a curse. You and I, if we're women, have the gift of femininity. And it's a divine gift to be accepted with both hands and to thank God for. Because remember, it was his idea. It was his idea. So I have another question for you. Do you think that maybe some, if not much, of what we believe about our womanhood, about our femininity is based on or influenced by the culture and not based on scripture. There's so many conflicting voices in our culture today and one of the loudest voices over the last 50 years or so has been that of feminism. So we're going to take a look back um, and spend an extra amount of time this morning looking back at history just because I think it's important that we're informed um, about that. And we're going to talk where we find ourselves today as a culture, at least just a little bit that I've learned. And then we're going to see what God says in his word. So, starting with feminism, what is that? What, what is feminism? Well, feminism started out being this radical movement about women's rights. Um, and, you know, we enjoy the right to vote because of that movement. Um, and I'm so thankful for that privilege to vote. But in the beginning, the feminist movement started out being more about legal rights, and then it grew and it developed into something much, much more than that. It's a, it's, it, it's a distinct worldview with its own ideologies and values and ways of thinking. The feminist era was a period of time where um, feminist ideas were being developed and they were being promoted and accepted into our culture. Even among the feminists and their agendas, there really wasn't one consensus regarding their definition of feminism or their meaning of womanhood. It was really all over the board. And so it's kind of hard to define. I'll try to describe some of the ideologies. Um, years ago, there was much debate 
um, regarding women, the um, women's right to have a career and raise children. And um, it was called the mommy, the mommy wars. That's that's when all of that started. And we don't hear as much about that today. But there's still some. And then there were pro-abortion feminists whose campaign was for a woman's right to take the life of her unborn baby. That was their agenda, and it still is. And then there were pro-life feminists who totally opposed abortion while subscribing to many other ideas of feminism. But the important thing to understand, though, is that women's rights, equality, in all forms is what they were after, rights and equality. It was about freedom and choice to be whoever and do whatever you want to do. The culture message in all its forms, and, and it was and still is, rights, equality, and self-sufficiency. How many of you have heard that term, male chauvinist pig? The older people, probably, if <laughs> you don't even hear that much anymore. But I, I used that term, um, sadly, but that's, that's kind of the, the era in that, when that became kind of popular. It was um, the woman's attitude to elevate self over men. Women started being offended by chivalry, offended when a man would try to open a door or buy a dinner. Um, it's when I think maybe that whole term um, started, like she wears the pants in the family, that kind of thing. Songs like, I am woman, hear me roar, and R-E-S-P-E-C-T, right, um, were their anthems, you know, and that still is true. It was a movement that promoted thoughts that women are better and smarter and stronger than men when degrading men became funny and even acceptable. Just, just watch TV and sitcoms. It's, it's very common. Their mantra was that no one, especially men, had the right to tell women what to do. It's, a, it's just a whole mindset of personal authority instead of bowing before the authority of God. Well, over the past decade or so, um, we've been transitioning from the feminist era to what's called the post-feminist era. What's the difference? Well, in the feminist era, feminist ideas, they were being developed. But now, you know, they're really pretty much fully formed. Their agenda and philosophies were pushed by philosophers and teachers and professors. And now they're embraced and believed by mostly everyone. But they've been integrated into our thinking. The ideas were radical then, and now they're just commonplace. In the feminist era, feminist ideas were identifiable. Now they're just indistinguishable. The feminist movement seems to be pretty much over. It's just really not a movement anymore um, because it was so successful. It's transitioned into being the current mindset and belief of most everyone in our culture, sadly. It's, it's been so mainstreamed into our society. It's just normal, and it's in the air we breathe. It's in the way um, we're told to think and what we see when we shop and what we hear women should be like when we watch TV and movies and entertainment. It's in our books. It's in our educational system. It's in the Girl Scouts of America, girl power, right? It's in those little American girl stories. It's everywhere. And women, they, they did. They bought into this lie, hook, line, and thinker, that feminism and all of its forms, it'll bring women what they want, joy and fulfillment and purpose and meaning in life and what they think they deserve. And all this demanding of rights, it was supposed to bring women liberation and fulfillment and freedom. It was supposed to make them feel better. But, but even the New York Times, just a, a liberal newspaper said, that's not working. They're not. We, we know 
we know that what they are seeking can only be filled by the transforming power of the gospel. When we humbly acknowledge the truth of the gospel, when we repent and we believe in Jesus and his finished work on the cross and all the realities of the gospel and then live according to God's design, that's when we're going to find fulfillment and freedom and joy. Because all that yearning and that longing for something more will, will not be filled with anything else. It can't be filmed, filled by the formula that our culture has been given by feminism. Okay, so where do we find ourselves today as a culture? Pretty confused, right? Pretty confused. Our upcoming post-feminist, or you know, some people call it third-wave feminism, but our upcoming post-feminist generation has little or sadly no understanding of God's design for men or God's design for women. Many completely reject his plan and his design for gender at all. One of the most recent and devastating debates is over the God-given differences between men and women. In our culture today, many men, they're not being taught or raised to understand what it means to be a man. Many women are not being taught and raised to understand what it means to be a woman and often despising their gender, who God created them to be, which has devastating effects on a culture and on, our, on families, just as a society. There is so much talk about gender confusion, gender disorder, gender neutrality. And, you know, I, I know this much. Some of you are out there more, and you probably could teach me a lot about what you're hearing and what you're seeing. Um, I, I also want to say there's about 1% of babies being born that have a medical condition, and I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about a medical condition at all. That's, that's physical. It's medical. I'm talking about rebellion. We're seeing even more of what's, being going, what's been going on for years where uh, men and women, they believe they were born with wrong um, body parts. Females are, um, they want to be male and male wanna be, males want to be females. There's um, more and more and more surgeries happening to reconstruct. To, um, they're called reassignment surgeries. Parents are giving children uh, drugs to switch the hormones, um, because they, they, uh, the little children are believing that they were born with wrong body parts. I've read quite a few blogs, and it's just so sad to see the hopelessness and the despair, you know, and, and, and the rebellion. And, and we know, you know, we know they don't need new body parts. We know they need new hearts. We know they need new hearts, just like we needed new hearts. I needed a new heart. I needed a new heart. I was completely rebellious as well. I was. But God in his mercy gave me, gave us, a new heart. And that changed everything. So let's, let's keep that in mind as we're, as we're talking about this and as we're thinking about this. And pray. And pray for others that God would, in his mercy, save them as well. Okay? So... Um, Back to, back to what we were talking about, in a push to be whatever gender um, some decide they want to be, there are those who don't want to be recognized as a gender at all. Um, they, want, they want to be gender neutral. Um, it's really happening. It's becoming more and more mainstream and accepted. 
Um, they want to be recognized as human beings rather than he or she, him or her. More and more parents are raising children to be gender neutral, allowing them to decide when they get older um, what gender they want to be. And, and they're working on even coming up with, a, uh, with a fi- an official pronoun uh, for them. There's, a, there's blogs on how to raise gender-neutral children and communities that are encouraging one another in that. Some are calling their children princess boys and boy chicks. Last year I told you about the preschool that was funded um, by taxpayers in Sweden, and it's operated, operating under the theory that by eliminating the uh, reference to gender, these little preschoolers won't fall prey to the stereotyping of gender roles, and they say there's no boys or no girls in this school. Um, they call one another friends, and um, last year there was a waiting list for this school, and this year they've opened a second school. Um, they have an official word now. Last year they didn't, but now there is an official word. Um, it's hen, H-E-N. Um, there are no gender-promoting books in this school. There's, you know, like Snow White or Cinderella, but they promote books featuring gay and lesbian couples and single parents. Now, um, in the United States, our U.S. passports, I told you about this last year, the application for children, um, the words were replaced, um, the words mother and father were removed and replaced with gender-neutral terminology, parent one and parent two, because they're saying that um, with the medical sciences and the reproductive technology, we're confronting situations we wouldn't have anticipated 10 or 15 years ago. If you sign up for a Google account now, you'll have the option of choosing male, female, or other. More and more of our universities are providing gender-neutral housing for students. Um, it's not co-ed dorms, but dorms for anyone, regardless of how they express their gender and their sexual preferences. In Michigan, last year, there was a high school that declared um, this year's prom court would be gender-neutral. No kings, no queens, after denying a transgender student the homecoming king crown last year. There are cities in the United States that cover sex reassignment surgeries for government employees treating these surgeries as medically necessary. I think Spain covers them as well, right, Michaela? Mm-hmm. Um, I read that there's a push for them to be covered in the, in the Obamacare plan. I could go on and on. But all of this is denying our creator's perfect design. Makes me sad. The secular world is, is deeply committed this. Deeply committed to the idea of gender neutrality. I'm sorry, I'm crying. (laughs) Um, Our secular world wants wants to be free from the concern for gender at all. They want a world where masculinity and femininity are just completely erased. Not that the lines are blurred, but erased as old-fashioned ideas. Their argument is that we must be free. We have the right to make whatever adjustments and alterations or transformations in gender and gender relationships that we desire and demanding that right. And all of this, all of this, they're denying the creator. This is a full-on attack against God who created us in his own image. Male and female. And, you know, we need to see it that way. On your outline, I have um, a quote there from Wayne Grudem and John Piper. 
It says, the tendency today is to stress the equality of men and women by minimizing the unique significance of our maleness or femaleness. But this depreciation of male and female personhood is at great loss. It's taken a tremendous toll on generations of young men and women who do not know what it means to be a man or woman. Confusion over the meaning of sexual personhood today is epidemic. And the consequences of this confusion is not a free and happy harmony uh, among gender-free persons. The consequence, rather, is more divorce and more homosexuality and more sexual abuse and more promiscuity, more emotional distress and suicide that comes with the loss of God-given identity. Now, this is the world we live in. This is where godlessness has taken us, and this is what sin does to us. It's about exalting self over and against all the rest of even what a culture has understood for thousands of years, but mostly it's an exaltation of self against God. I think you have, a, you have a quote here from John MacArthur as well, but like he says, what I'm saying right now is not politically correct. It's not. But that's okay, because we want to be biblically correct. It should come as no huge surprise to any of us that the secular world is confused and completely distorted about identity and about our calling as a woman. But what's worse is to the extent to which the worldly philosophy of our culture is influenced, even the evangelical world. We may not even know we've adopted feminist values, right? But I can almost guarantee you that none of us in this room is exempt from being affected by it. In fact, one author says scores of evangelical women are functional feminists because, you know, the world's paradigm for womanhood is the only one they've ever heard. That was me. It's all they'd ever heard. See, these ideas, they're not out just out there, but because God in his grace, he saves sinners, he saves people. And, and you know, he saved us out of that culture, and he gives us new hearts, and then he brings us into the church. And some of us bring, you know, those ideologies in. I did. So, of course, it's going to come in to the church. But then the church, rather than holding up the word of God and exalting God's design for men and women, teaching and discipling, has in many cases let that ideology into its teaching. And so we see gender-neutral Bibles. Women, ministers, pastors and teachers, gay clergy, and so on. The implications of the post-feminist era for the church are huge. It's huge. The default setting has changed. Even for those raised in the church, we can't assume that people in the church have a biblical framework for understanding these things. Manhood and womanhood and male-female relationships now have become more of a, of, um, a discipleship issue. We've got, to, we've got to teach. And so it's critical that we are grounded in deep, gospel-centered theology about God's design for women. And for gender, it's essential in order to combat this, the carnage that accompanies this post-feminist mindset. So is the solution to rewind the clock to the, like the 1950s and, you know, go back to the leave it to beaver culture? No, that's not the solution at all. The solution is to embrace the word of God, to embrace and trust his divine design in this culture, right where he has us now. So we need to know, and we need to humbly speak, and live out clearly what the Bible teaches about womanhood. Without fear. Without fear, even though, you know what? We may be persecuted. More than likely, we may be more and more persecuted for speaking the truth. 
but we do it humbly. And, and we must teach God's plan for women and men to our sons and to our daughters, the next generation. There's so much at stake. So we are going to survey scripture this morning, and we're going to see God doing two things throughout his word that cannot be separated. You can see this on your outline. You see, um, spiritual equality. We are spiritually equal before God and others, and, we, and, then, and then we have different roles. You'll see that says role differentiation, the distinctions and differences between the roles of men and women in our families and in the church. And on your outline, you're going to see how it's been laid out. We're going to see that we are spiritually equal before God and others in the Old Testament. And then we're going to see that in number two in Jesus' treatment of women. And then we're going to look, take a look at that in um, the rest of the New Testament. So um, it is just so important to understand this, that these two biblical realities are inseparable. They're inseparable. We are spiritually equal before God and others, and there are distinctions and differences between the roles that God has for us. It's called um, a complementarian view, and, and we embrace this because it's, it's um, God's revealed it to be in Scripture this way. And we embrace this view because of the amazing revelation that, that biblical manhood and biblical womanhood bring into into the dark culture. Listen, we will find freedom and joy not in casting off his design, but embracing it. Our true joy is found when our whole pursuit is making God more clearly known. That's what we want to do, right? So let's embrace whatever God has for us to make him more visible. We don't have to look to our culture to find our feminine identity. We don't have to consult our feelings to discover our purpose. There's only one place to go to know what it means to be a woman. At any age, at any stage of life, old, young, single, married, widowed, with children or without children. Whatever season of life, and that is God and his word. He made woman. Elizabeth Elliot says this, In order to learn what it means to be a woman, we must start with the one who, who made her. So let's turn to Genesis 1. Genesis 1, 26. And we're going to see, um, starting in your outline, we're starting with uh, spiritual equality in the Old Testament. Hmm. Did I miss something? Oh, it's on the back. It's on the back. Spiritual equality in the Old Testament. See, from the very beginning, we see in Scripture that men and women are equally created in the image of God. Starting in verse 26, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, him. Male and female, he created them. Male and female, he created them. This is his design. And what does it mean to be created in the image of God? Well, in chapter 1 of Colossians, and that's, that's there on, on your outline, says that he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So we look to Jesus to see what that image is. 
And what did it look like for Jesus to bear the image of God? Philippians 2.6 says, Who, although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God, a thing to be grasped. See, he existed in the form of God, and form is a similar word um, to image. So he existed in the image of God. Do you see the unity with God there? And then he didn't regard that unity, that equality with God as something to be grasped after. But verse 7 says, he emptied himself. He emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. And then death on a cross. See, Jesus did not promote himself. He didn't fight for his rights. But rather, verse 7 here, it says that he emptied himself, taking on the form of a slave. Being in the form of God led him to take on the form of a slave. The image of God is that of serving, not grasping for yourself, your ideas, your self-promotion, but humbly giving yourself away like, like a slave does. And Jesus confirmed this when he says that um, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but rather he says what in, in Mark 10, verse 45, that he came to what? He came to serve. The Son of Man, Jesus, he came to serve. And how did he serve? He gave his life away for many. And you have some more references there on your outline that you can look at, look up later. So that's the image in which men and women were created um, to bear this kind of self-giving love in Christ. However, men and women have also, also been equally impacted by sin. After man was created in God's image in Genesis 1, right around the corner in Genesis 3, sin enters the world. In Genesis 1 and 2, it's all about God's majesty and his awesome power, his perfect design and his abundance. We can't even grasp the power of God to create a universe out of nothing. We can't even relate to humanity that's perfectly innocent. Unfortunately, we can relate to Chapter 3, though, right? So we go from his majesty and his wonder in chapters 1 and 2 to very familiar territory where the serpent came. Eve was attacked at the very image of God in her. He slandered God, and Eve's heart was enticed. She became a self-grasper, tarnishing the display of God's image in her. That's what we do when we live for ourselves. And when Eve sinned, and then Adam gave in, these, the two self-graspers, they obscured the image of God in them. And, and that's what we've all been plagued with ever since. So men and women are equally impacted and corrupted by sin's presence and sin's power. Men and women are both equally unable, unable to change their sinful condition, both equally in need of salvation. One's not more in the image of God than the other. One's not more spiritually bankrupt than the other. We are spiritually equal. But there are differences in our roles that God has for us. Now in your outline, we're at role differentiation in the Old Testament. Let's look at Genesis 2, starting in verse 18, where God shows us his purpose in creating woman. 
Starting in verse 18, it says, And the Lord God said, Well, it's not good for man to be alone. I'll make him a helper suitable for him. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam... There was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. And then he took one of his ribs, and he closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib, which he had taken from the man, and brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. It was Adam who was first created. And then Eve, God created man for a particular task, and he needed a helper. Adam was incomplete without someone to, to complement, to complete him in fulfilling the task of taking dominion over the earth. So God created Eve. Adam didn't need another Adam. Right? He didn't need another Adam. He needed someone who was different. He needed Eve. So right here we already see the different roles before the fall. Even, even the order in which they were created is linked to different roles. But it doesn't affect our spirituality, our spiritual equality at all. And I've been using that word equality a lot this morning. I'm not talking about equality like equal rights. Uh, no, we are sinners equally in need of salvation, and we equally share in the blood of Christ. And we are equally called to be used in his kingdom in different roles. So God created man first, then he created woman. He had an order in mind when he created, an order that even Paul will um, repeatedly appeal to in the New Testament. That, that is on your outline as well, um, 1 Corinthians 11:3. He says, but I want you to understand that Christ is ahead of every man, and the man's ahead of a woman, and God's ahead of Christ. Do you see the order there? There's order. So God always established that men would be in leadership roles right from the beginning. Right from the beginning, in Israel, men, men were responsible for national and religious leadership, you know, from the garden to the final prophets. Adam, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, to David, to the rest of the kings, the priesthood of Israel, the prophets of the nation. And women were also active in the religious life of the nation. You know, we have Miriam and Huldah. They were prophetesses. And then, and then there was Deborah. She was a judge. But what we do not have an account for in the Old Testament is significant. There were, there were never any women priests, heads of tribes or kings. And that's just that's significant. All right, so we're at the top of your outline on page three. And we're going to start here with um, notice what sin does. Sin does. Sin distorted their God-given role differentiation, the differences. Sin did not introduce it. We're, we're going to kind of unpack that. But let's turn back to Genesis 3, verses 1 through 6. So remember, man and woman, they already had their roles prior to the fall, right? Their roles were not introduced as punishment after or because of the fall. Our roles are not God's punishment for sin. Our roles are not God's punishment for sin. The distortion of our roles doesn't start when God pronounced the curse to woman. 
in Genesis 3.16, it starts at the very beginning of chapter 3. We find Eve in this conversation with the serpent, the tempter. He's evil and he's deceptive. And Eve was caught off guard. He slandered God and her heart was enticed. In verse 6, she believed his lie he, um, that if she gave in, she would become wise. And, excuse me, that God was keeping something from her. So, she disobeyed God. And she ate. She gave it to her husband. He rebelliously ate. So we already see that, you know, who's she trusting in? Who's she trusting in right there? In herself, right? She's trusting in herself. In her own wisdom. Think about Eve. What was her sin? Independence. Self-grasping. Self-reliance. What was she doing even listening to the serpent? She was trusting in her own judgment. She was getting out from under God's authority. Out from under her husband. She was seeking to satisfy herself. Rebelling against God. That's not fulfilling her role as a helper, is it? How how does that in any way acknowledge Adam's leadership over her? And how does it honor God's right to define her role? Adam certainly had his part and is fully responsible as well. In a, in a world previously untouched by sin, Eve believed the lie that she could trust herself more than she could trust God. And that's, that's a rejection of the role God gave her. And as we live in this mixed condition, thankfully this side of the cross, it's very familiar to us too. How do we see that in our own hearts? Well, just like Eve, if we're married... You know, we may independently step out from under our husband's protection or leadership, seek control over him. And, you know, we may do it by taking charge, seeking control, or to exert our own will, stepping outside of God's design. Now, trying to control can show up in various ways. For some of us, trying to control may be this quiet, smoldering, silent treatment. Sometimes that hostility can take on an attitude of coldness or indifference. With others, it's a shouting hostility that isn't much of a secret to anyone, right? Especially those in our household. Anybody relate to that? For some of us, we have such a way of just bulldozing right over others with our words. Right over our husbands, right over our children, right? I can relate to that. This is what sin does. Sin is what distorts our God-given differentiation of roles. You know why God gave us roles? Because he has something to communicate through them. And sin's motive is to destroy that image through undoing the roles that God has for us. When Adam and Eve sinned, there were consequences. They forfeited life in the goodness of the garden. They traded unhindered fellowship with God. There's pain in childbirth and childbearing and childrearing. We, we deal with disease, physical complications, pain, even in raising and nurturing children. <clears throat> Many of us know that very well. There's also death, and most importantly, there's separation from God. Adam and Eve were the first ones to sin, but we are no different. See, men... Equal rights, gender, it's not the problem. 
like the world would have us think. Our problem is sin. Sin warps everything. James tells us that sin's the reason for jealousy and selfish ambition, disorder, and every other vile practice that characterizes false witness. Sin is the reason we need a savior. Right? Now we're going to look at how Jesus emphasizes, emphasizes the exact same thing. There's a consistent pattern. And that's point two on your outline. This is God's plan from way back, and, and it's continuing. We're on number two in your outline, where Jesus dramatically emphasized a woman's spiritual equality with man in the midst of this woman demeaning Greek, Roman, and even Jewish culture. In that culture, in Jesus' day, women were possessions. They, they weren't even worth teaching the Torah to. In fact, they believed it was better to burn the Torah than to teach it to a woman. They claimed that by their very nature, women couldn't understand spiritual or theological truths. Men, in Jesus' day, they normally wouldn't even... Um, allow women to count change into their hand for fear of physical contact. But Jesus dramatically countered this godless view of women. The references are on your outline, and you can look them up later if you want, but where it's listed, one through six there, Jesus uses illustrations and images familiar and useful for women. Jesus revealed himself as Messiah to women. Number three, in Luke 10, while Martha's busy in the kitchen, Jesus was teaching Mary, which is so countercultural. Jesus touched women and he allowed them to touch him. And in Luke 8, Jesus allowed women to travel with him and his disciples. That was countercultural, too. In John 20, Jesus revealed himself to Mary Magdalene after he rose from the dead, sending her to tell the men. Despite Jewish courts not even allowing women to witness because they were considered liars. See, in Jesus' treatment of women, he showed them compassion and respect in a way that they had never known in their culture. He didn't demean women at all. And all of this demonstrates their spiritual equality. But Jesus, at the same time, he did nothing to exalt women to a place of leadership over men. And what he also never did, though he clearly could have, is to choose any women to be among the twelve. You know, that would have been a perfect time to do that, right? Prime opportunity to change what God had done so far, what he had revealed in the Old Testament. A prime time to establish a change in women's roles, but he didn't. He didn't do that. Because he affirms and he continues God's view and pattern for the role of women revealed in the Old Testament. And that leads us to number three on your outline, the rest of the Old Testament. Under spiritual equality, let's look at Galatians 3.28. It's there on your outline. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Redemption involves no distinction between male and female. Salvation comes with no preference given to one gender over the other, ever. For example, you have, on, you have on your outline as well, in Acts 18.26, there was Priscilla and his wife Aquila, and they ministered together. They ministered, they equally served Apollos to build him up with more complete teaching on Christ. And in Philippians 4, you have Odia and Sintuke, and they were both women. They shared Paul's struggle in the cause of the gospel. 
But we also see that both men and women, they received spiritual gifts. And in 1 Peter 3, one, uh, and starting in 1, it says that the wife is the fellow heir, the fellow heir of the grace of life. However, there are differences in roles. You know, it's so easy for us to see the gospel when we look at spiritual equality in the New Testament, right? We love that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. We love that. That men and women, they have an equal need for Jesus. We have an equal cleansing in his blood. But ladies, the gospel is on display every bit as much in our different roles that God describes for men and women in the New Testament. The Lord's designed for us different roles in order that we participate together in displaying the gospel. Remember, we see in his wor- that his word is inspired by God's Holy Spirit. It's not inspired by the culture of that day. You see your references on the outline where um, the different roles and responsibilities for men and women in the church. You see some references there, but I'm just going to summarize it for our roles in the church. Leadership roles of the church um, are the elders and deacons, and, and their, those offices are filled by men. The primary broader teaching responsibility rests on men. Men have this incredible responsibility to display Christ, his loving servant leadership, his servant leadership toward the body. It's a servant leadership role. What a responsibility they have. And so I just have to ask, you know, and evaluate. Am I, am I making that God-given role that they have a joy for them to serve us and lead us? Or am I making it a burden? It's like it's something good to think about and ask and go before the Lord. Now, women, the role and privileges that God has for us in displaying the supportive and submissive character of the church is in her relationship to her, or in the church's, um, I'm going to start that over. Women, the roles and privileges that God has for us, are about displaying the supportive and submissive character of the church in her relationship to her Savior. And we respond, we follow the lead of our elders and our deacons. So even when we're ministering one woman to another, or with children and next generation ministries, or in all the many ministry opportunities that we have as we're discipling alongside our husbands, all of these ministries are ultimately overseen by, by men. Wellspring is overseen by the elders. And I love that. Actually, Scott Maxwell is the elder directly over um, Wellspring. And there's protection there. See, our elders, they love the Lord, and they love his church, and they take their role that he has given to them seriously. And in that, they love and care for us. They serve us in their leadership. We need their shepherding. We need their leadership. And it's so comforting to know that we have it. And when Scripture limits the scope in which we're to use our gifts, again, it's because God's design is to um, display his relationship with his people through through that. See, this is all about how he displays his love and care and protection and leadership for his people and how we, his people, trust him and follow his lead. And in marriage, we find this very same principle at work. 
Husbands have this mind-boggling responsibility, this calling to love their wives, like Christ loved the church. So I have to ask, do you see the high calling that husbands have? Just think about that. You know, how did Christ love the church? He gave himself. He gave himself to purchase us for himself. So if you're married, you can display your trusting submission to your Savior by submitting to your husband. Are you helping your husband? Are you his helpmate and loving you like Christ loved the church? Are you lovable? So we get to serve and we get to give ourselves away in that. And if you're not married, you have the privilege to display your trusting submission to the Lord by submitting to the authorities God has over you. Whether it's your parents or your boss or the elders in the church. See, men and women fulfill their God-given roles um, as we humbly, or women do. Um, I'm going to start that over too because I want to make this very clear. When men and women fulfill their God-given roles, and we as women live in humble, respectful submission and support under our church leaders and under our husbands, you know what happens? The word of God is honored. And the gospel's on display. We actually demonstrate to one another and to a watching world the relationship we were saved into at the cross. Jesus in relationship with his bride. Isn't that exciting? <laughs> this is good. This is why we embrace who God has created us to be. Why we embrace biblical womanhood. Because God has something to reveal about himself to us and to the world. Through not only our spiritual equality, but also through our different roles. Okay, so how do the different roles reveal our great God? Well, first of all, think of the members of the Godhead. They have different roles, right? Along with their divine equality. Men and women, they give us a simpler picture of who our triune three-in-one God is. Think about this. Each of the three members of the Godhead reveal the image of God. To be the self-giving love. Each of the three manifests the self-giving love toward one another. The father loves the son. The son loves the father. He gives himself over to the father's will to redeem his people. The spirit gives himself to reveal the son to his people. And both recreated man and woman equally possess this image within. But that image is enhanced. It's magnified. It's glorified. Not by men and women having the exact same roles. The son takes on a different role from the father. Without losing any self-giving love or losing any deity. So see, to diminish any one of their unique roles would cause us to miss something of who God is. The same is true with the different roles given to men and women. and The um, the roles given to single women. The roles given to married women. Because our roles are unique privileges given to us from God. So... Like I said, this is just laying a foundation. Sarah's going to be teaching more on this regarding our biblical roles as women and uh, being married and unmarried and Titus 2. So, see, these, these roles are there to reveal something more of who God is and what his image is in, in us. And this is important. If we seek to erase these God-given roles, then we make the image of God in us less visible. We're image bearers of the living God, and we're equal before the cross. 
but different. We have differently, divinely assigned roles. And when male and female live and work together, as God intended, it's beautiful. There's joy. There, it's satisfying, and it's God-glorifying. It's God-glorifying. So let's grow, and it's in, let's encourage one another in this, and let's embrace and love these God-given roles for us because God will best be seen within us, within our marriages, within our families, and within our church, and within our culture as we are obedient to him in these roles he's given us. And because it exalts, it exalts God the Father, and it, and it exalts God the Son, and it exalts God the, God the Holy Spirit, and to not live up to the role God's given us or to cross role boundaries that he has for us is to just cloud that visibility in and through us as redeemed people and to send a distorted message to the world around us. His created order is beautiful. God took delight in it. And what did he say? He said it's very good. He said it's good because these are such critical images. Is it any wonder Is it any wonder they're at the center of such a strong battle today? We shouldn't be surprised that Satan wants to wage war. Our flesh wants to wage war. Our culture wants to wage war. God determined how we best glorify him. So we need to look at God's heart, at his heart for male, his heart for female, his heart for authority, his heart for leadership, and bow. Bow. We must look at all of it and say, okay, God, you tell me how I best glorify you, and I'll humbly bring myself in line with that. And you know, if we're not grounding our lives and our thinking, if we're not shepherding our hearts in the word of God, if we don't understand what his word says about being a woman biblically and how those roles are to function within the home and within our church and within our culture, you know, then sooner or later we'll be vulnerable in our homes and in our churches and in our culture to the very same kind of thinking that's turned the secular cultural world upside down. Theology matters. Theology really does matter. Your view of God will determine your view of every other aspect of life. So we need to take this really seriously because when we choose to live apart from his design, we distort the gospel picture and we miss We miss the entire point of being a woman. You know, every time I value my independence, my life plans, my opinions over what would bring God glory and displaying the gospel, it's rebellion against God and who he created me to be. And you know, the truth apart from the gospel, this really doesn't make any sense, does it? It's foolishness. God's word says to those who are perishing, none of life makes sense apart from the gospel. But it's our only motivator to live in the fullness of God's good plan and gospel purposes. And scripture instructs us in Titus 2 and 1 Peter, as Christian women, to be reverent, not gossips, not enslaved to much wine, to teach what's good, to love husbands, to love our children, to be sensible, to be pure, workers at home, showing hospitality, being kind, developing a gentle and quiet spirit. And we do this so not to dishonor God's word. Titus 2 instructs us that older women are to teach the younger women. And ladies, we need to be teaching our daughters and our sons God's design for them as male and female. They need to hear truth from God's word. 
from creation regarding masculinity and femininity. So they'll recognize and they'll reject the world's voice. And they can be confident in who God created them to be. And lastly, I want to say there's another loud voice that's competing in our culture today. And it's getting louder and louder and louder. And, and that's of um, sexuality and sensuality. You know, it's, it's just a culture of extremes, isn't it? Sensuality and sexuality is big money itself. And it's being marketed in every way. Not only in malls, but TV. 1 Timothy 2.9 says that women are to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly. That's super countercultural, isn't it? <laughs> We're called to be modest. We're called to be discreet and self-controlled in our actions and how we dress. See, our attitude, our behavior, and dress is all a matter of worship. This is, here's what John MacArthur says, and I think this is really good. You show me a woman with a beautiful character and show me a woman with a meek and quiet spirit. Show me a woman who has an incorruptible heart. Show me a woman who comes to worship God. And I'll show you a woman whose wardrobe you don't have to worry about because her heart dictates that issue. It's a matter of conviction. The way we dress goes right to our heart and why we wear what we wear. So any discussion about modesty and what we wear, it begins with, with our hearts, you know, not our hemline. It begins with our hearts. And the world's loud competing voice to us is that we can make much of ourselves and feel good about ourselves and flaunt ourselves. Flaunt however we want. We can flaunt certain features. We have the right. We have the freedom to do that, right? To dress however we want. You know, expose whatever we want to expose. You know, it's our bodies. If you don't like it, don't look. Would that be the attitude of the culture? But it's different for us. It's different for us. We're called and we have the privilege to display something way more glorious, our Savior. 1 Peter 6 um, says that, uh, starting in verse 19, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. 1 Peter 3 says that our beauty, it doesn't come from our outward adornment. It should come from the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in God's sight. So if we profess Christ, our motivation for what we wear is to be, to be distinct, it's to be different from the culture. You know, guys are visual. Most of us know that, maybe not all of us. But, but they are. Men are visual. They're stimulated by the things they see. They're different from us. You know? And even when they don't want to look, when they don't want to see them, when we dress immodestly, it, it sends a visual message to guys, whether, they, whether we mean to or not. You know, um, in Romans 14 and, and 1 Corinthians 8, Paul talks about going to great efforts to help a brother not to stumble in his walk with the Lord. So whether we understand it or not, guys are in a battle. Men are in a battle to keep their eyes pure. And we can help. We can love them by dressing modestly, giving guys a rest for their eyes. So we can ask questions like, 
You know, are my clothes provocative? Are they seductive? Do they honor nakedness? Remember, clothes, what's the purpose of clothes? Cover. They're to cover up, right? They're to cover nakedness. They're not to draw attention to nakedness, especially certain areas. Modesty is humility expressed in what we wear. It's a desire to serve others, particularly men, and to not promote or provoke sensuality or lust. Modesty means that you agree with the Lord about the true purpose of clothing and set aside self-interest to dress in a way that exalts Christ. And you know, since I have time, okay, I'm like so uncomfortable. I feel like turning this off, but <laughs> but um, it just needs to be talked about, right? Like we're women, we need to talk about this. It's God's word, and it's His heart for us. But there are certain body parts, you know, that are for our husband's eyes only, or our future husband's eyes only, no one else's eyes. And, and one being our breasts, they're not they're they're not for everyone to see, um, full or part. The the world's rebellious the world rebe- rebelliously flaunts and seduces and markets with sensuality and with sexuality. Are we being seduced? Are we being lured by the world's temptation to look more like the world? Or or are we loving and worshiping God by taking care to be purposeful in how we dress? You know, and I'm not talking about putting a gunny sack on. You know, we live in a culture, we don't want to be extreme, and we don't want to distract in a way a gunny sack would distract. (laughs) Right? (laughs) So that's not what I'm talking about at all. Modesty is really about conviction. What I wear relates to who and how I worship and how I love, how I love my brothers and my sisters in Christ. So when we're shopping, you know, let's have intentionality. Let's ask others. Let's ask those with the same convictions, those who will help me to live on principles based on those convictions. I need help. I need your help, sisters in Christ. If you see me immodest, you have permission to come to me and tell me, I need your help. In closing, I just want to say, there will probably always be, there will always be cultural trends that shifts, that change. But we can take our cues and our definitions from scripture and not culture. And we can confidently trust in that. The, world, the word of God never changes. Isn't that comforting? It's comforting. Without a doubt in our mixed condition, we'll always have to guard against our self-willed mindset in our own hearts. And I hope that after today you will ask God, you know, where has maybe feminism or a worldly kind of thinking seeped in? Our lives are about bringing glory to the gospel, to Jesus Christ. And we do that as 
male and female in distinctive ways. That's why God created us, male and female, to tell this great love story of his bridegroom, Jesus Christ, and the bride, his church. Men and women point to that story in different ways as men and women. That's why it's so important that we get our womanhood right and that we do womanhood the way God's word points us to. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we love you. We praise you. You're good. Lord, will you show us where we've allowed the world's thinking and the culture to seep into our thinking? Will you help us, Lord, to see that and to repent and to change, to look more like your son? To make much of him, to glorify you, to, to be light, to be different, to be light in a really dark culture that's getting darker. Lord, I pray that we would bow that we would humbly submit to whatever you want us to do. Lord, I pray for each and every one of these women in their discussion groups. I pray, Lord, that um, it would be a sweet time to encourage one another and to point one another to you. Lord, we love you. We praise you for this morning, and it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.